welcome to a grad chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's A Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this cannot happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, don't forget you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. But today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Isabella Asselstein, who is doing a master's in biology under the supervision of Dr. William Bendena. Welcome to Grad Chat, Isabella. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you. I always find biology fascinating, and I know you're going to c- come and talk to us about some even more fascinating things, and it kind of piqued my interest because your research topic is investigating the role of neuropeptide receptor 14, in brackets NPR-14, in C. elegans sleep. Now, that actually meant nothing to me, but then I got to read one of your blogs. So it's more like, what can we learn about sleep disorders from worms? Definitely, yeah. Much easier title for me. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can see, you know, the sleep disorder. Okay, we're using worms to figure it out. Of course, then that piques my interest into saying, well, what do worms have to do about it? But first of all, I mean, you're clearly looking at sleep. Mm-hmm. And one of the words that people use about sleep disorders is narcolepsy. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So narcolepsy is one of the most prevalent sleep disorders. Approximately one in 2,000 people in the U.S. and Europe that's are a lot. expected. Yeah, to suffer. <laughs> Actually, that's probably an underestimate. Right. Right. But yeah, it's quite prevalent. And typically, what it is is there's a variety of symptoms, but essentially, sufferers will be experiencing excessive sleepiness during the day and can suffer from attacks of cataplexy, which is sudden sleep attacks. Oh, as in just dropping asleep? It typically happens when people are doing more sedentary activities, like right. sitting down or driving. But yeah, it's quite common to just like doze off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> bit dangerous. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. As you can imagine, it's quite disruptive to people's lives. So definitely like knowing the cause of that is of interest to a lot of people. Well, yes, I could imagine. Yeah. If anyone's got a friend who's got narcolepsy, don't let them drive, I reckon. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I mean, biology, of all the all the things that you could look for in biology, why did you choose this area of biology? Because you could have done anything. And right. a lot of times people think biology is more about the animals or the plants and the you know the fish and, and what's going on right. in the water. So why this part? Because it, clearly this isn't in relation to humans. Right, yeah. So my research focus is more like the molecular um, biology genetics side. And that was kind of what I had my interest in all throughout undergrad. It was the right. classes I found more, most interesting and what I was more drawn towards. So in my fourth year at Queen's, I wanted to start an undergraduate thesis. And I applied to the Chinseng Lab, which was doing C. elegans research, right. more about the insulin pathway. And then for my master's, I went to the other C. elegans lab, which was Dr. Bandana's lab. And for this project in particular, it actually wasn't chosen by me per se. I think I'm the fourth grad student to work on it. Right. It's been an ongoing effort for a number of years in my awesome lab. Yeah. So when I applied for the lab, Dr. B was like, hey, this is a project we have ongoing. And it piqued my interest. It's quite a fascinating topic to me. So I was like, yeah, I'd love to give it a shot and see what I can do in terms of this. And so just to let everyone know, the C. elegans, that's the name of a worm. Yeah, it's a <laughs> soil-dwelling nematode worm. They're super tiny. 
tiny, just like one millimeter in length. Oh, my tiny. That sounds a bit creepy, actually. Yeah, yeah. But it's so funny. When I talk to my friends who aren't in bio and I say, like, the worms, I think your mind automatically goes to, like, earthworms. Yes. And I have to clarify, like, no, I'm not dealing with earthworms all day. These are very small, almost like... You can see them a little bit in certain lights, but right. pretty much you can't see them unless you look under a microscope, and they leave, live on little Petri dishes. So a lot more simplified, not as gross as you would imagine, like, big earthworms I don't to be. know. I think the little ones are, are grosser because you don't oh, you know reckon? they're there. Yeah. I find them kind of cute, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fascinating that, before we get into your research, of course, is that you got this interest from your fourth year in undergrad, which is a great time. I mean, mm. In undergrad, mm-hmm. you have these options in fourth year to do a research project, but you oh, also have an nice. option to do a fast track to do a couple of grad courses at the same time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I didn't do that. I had There are two people in my lab who did do like the accelerated master's program right. for the fourth year of thesis bleeding into a master's. But for me, no. I had two separate projects, one in my fourth year and now my master's project. Right. And I think more people need to do that, don't they, to get right. give you an idea of what research is like particularly in your sort of area where it's a lot of it's lab work or, or field research uh-huh. and so from what you're saying is do you think you would have been interested in going on if you hadn't have had that opportunity I don't think so no I think it was yeah kind of as you were saying you learn a lot of like theoretical mm-hmm. concepts behind biology throughout your undergrad in terms of like lectures and the classes you take but really you don't get to apply them unless you take kind of a lab-based course or right. in my instance like the fourth year project is the perfect opportunity to put what you've learned into play. So, yeah, I think it really did play a big part in having me want to keep pursuing academia at the master's level. That's um, good. Because you find out, yeah, you don't really know if you like something until you've tried it. So No. Yeah. So, so okay, let's go on to your work then. So uh-huh. you're doing work on the end result is looking at how to figure out how we can control this. Is it a condition, a disease? I don't know what they call it, of narcolepsy in humans. Right, yeah. Is that's it a condition? The, is that what it's called? Or I would say like a sleep disorder. A sleep disorder. Yeah. Okay, so that's your ultimate goal is to try and figure that out. But you're using this worm, the C. elegans worm, Mm-hmm. to do that can you first of all before we go and talk more about the the worms mm-hmm. <laughs> give us a, a bit more of an overview of what your research project is because you're only in your master's it's not a long time but as right. you said this is a continuing one so clearly your predecessors have done a certain amount of work on this mm-hmm. which means you can tick those off you don't have to go through those again right you can right. try something new so can you give us a bit of an overview on that Right. So yeah, the general broad topic is to learn more about narcolepsy. However, that's not really what I'm going to be doing in my project. This is more kind of starting from ground zero, learning more about my receptor, which is neuropeptide receptor 14, MPR14. And the reason we're so interested in studying this receptor is that it's thought to be the C. elegans equivalent to a receptor found in humans called orexin 2 Okay, mm-hmm. okay. And what's interesting is that in basically in humans, the orexin signaling pathway is a pathway that promotes wakefulness. And we found in humans and other mammal models that when orexin signaling is disrupted in some way, this causes narcolepsy. Okay. Yeah. And then the interesting thing is we see also in the worms that when MPR14, which is an orexin receptor equivalent, when MPR14 is non-functional, we have narcoleptic type worms. So essentially they are able to exhibit like normal movement and then they'll go they'll go through bouts of 
sporadic sleep, kind of similar to what you'd expect. Yeah, it's pretty funny when I first explain it to it people. <laughs> yeah, but it's a nice explanation. Mm-hmm. And so listening to other students talk about different things, it's so something's disrupting this this sequence to allow people to continue to stay awake. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to find out where it's getting disrupted. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. So that's, that's really, really important. So... You kind of answered the question, do these worms sleep? So, well, clearly they do. But do, do worms sleep normally or is it just because of this little thing that got in there? Yeah, they do sleep normally. Actually, they have two kind of distinct sleep mechanisms. One is called the developmentally timed sleep. And that is basically as the worms are developing, they undergo four larval stages. And between each of these larval stages, they have like a two to three hour sleep period that precedes their molt and then they enter the next larval stage right and this has kind of been likened to our like circadian sleep in humans because it's cyclical right but then in addition to that they also have what's called the stress-induced sleep pathway which is essentially when you expose the worms to some kind of stressor be it uv stress or heat or cellular injury um they will sleep after and it's it's kind kind of of like they're shutting themselves down to protect themselves it's uh i think it's been likened to like when we sleep more and we're sick, it's more like restorative in nature. Right. Because it's been shown that when actually when the components of stress-induced sleep are blocked and the, the worms are not able to enter it, um, they are basically less fit afterwards. Like right. they kind of maintain this damage instead of being restored and repaired. So it has some kind of like restorative aspect to it for sure. Who'd have thought right. with the worms, right? I'm still fascinated how we could have, could have found that a worm has similarities to the humans. I mean, we often think, you know, when we're sort of testing different things, that apes and monkeys and things like that, but right. a worm. Right. How do, who found out that a worm could have these similarities? Well, actually, uh, the scientist who kind of was... Um, the scientist who kind of spearheaded C. elegans as a model or uh, organism was Sidney Brenner back in like the 60s and 70s. He identified them as like a useful model. And the fascinating thing with biology is, yes, as you said, like you would expect apes and more closely related animals to have a high degree of genetic mm-hmm. conservation between us and them, uh, which, is the ca- which is the case. But also you'll see even very simple animals such as C. elegans have a high degree of conservation. And this is mainly in genes that are essential for survival, like very basic genes that would be useful throughout all organisms and species types. Like these are the ones that you'll see be more highly conserved. So although we don't have a lot in common with a worm, there are quite a high number of genes that are conserved. I think it's like 60 to 80% of C. elegans genes have human equivalents. Is that right? Yeah, it's crazy. They're very widely used in genetics for this reason. Yeah. Well, just goes to show we may have come from a worm. Yeah. <laughs> we have a common ancestor with we the worms. We do have a common ancestor. Okay, there are some squirmy people around, so yes. <laughs> maybe it's all stronger. Sense now. It is. It is all making sense. I love it. So, how do your experiments help you deduce then where is that actual NPR fourteen where it's actually acting with the worm in its sleep pathway? Because I mean, the hardest thing is we know it's there, but at uh-huh. what stage does it get activated, and where I'm going to be very general along the line. Uh-huh. Does it does it hit? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's not as easy to deduce as you would think, but <laughs> there are components of sleep that we know of already, like components of the stress-induced sleep pathway that we know are activated when the worms are sleepy or when the worms are stressed. 
So essentially what I'm going to do is, or what I've done, <laughs> is have a variety of different mutations in the worms, one of which is like NPR14 will be mutated. Right. So I'll see kind of how the worm's sleep behavior is affected when NPR14 is mutated. And then I can also go kind of down the list and mutate different components of sleep that we know to already be used in this pathway and then basically see the effect of that on sleep. And then the last step is to combine the two mutations. So we'll have MPR14 will be mutated as right. well as another known component of sleep. And then we'll see, okay, in these worms with the double mutation, how is their sleep affected by having both of these? Right. And basically depending on how their sleep behavior is affected by whatever mutation they have, we can kind of deduce where in the pathway MPR14 may be acting. Although right. it's really not that straightforward. Well, it no, because kind of... there's a, a, probably a lot of other variables going on that you can't control. Absolutely. I think the best case scenario would be like you have one neuropeptide and one receptor and they right. only act on each other and it's all linear. But that's very much not the case with a lot of signaling. Right. So really, my research is kind of giving us a hint to where it could be acting, kind of where to look. But I would be hard pressed to say that by then my master's, we would know for sure NPR14 is here. So your predecessors, mm -hmm. as you said, this has been going on for a long time. Right. Have they done similar experiments to to knock off certain things that you can say, I don't, off, off the checklist, no, we know that's not going to happen or mm -hmm. this has happened and, okay, remember that, but don't remember, you know, we can forget about that part. Mm -hmm. So before you started your particular experiments, did you go back and see what they had done to take those out of the equation? I did, yeah. So I'm kind of, I'm dealing with my own, not novel, novel to the lab, I guess, neuropeptides that haven't been dealt with before right. in previous times. But I'm also redoing a number of experiments that had been done by previous master's students. That's good. Just to kind of confirm results and stuff like that. Because we have new technology and new protocols now, so. Well, actually, you bring up a good point there, because as we're going through, as you know, with new technologies and things, how much further do we have to go back and sort of redo what has been done in the past because like you said that may not have been picked up in theirs because they didn't have the right technology but now you do so you could constantly be going back and rechecking Definitely. everything that has been done yeah that's a great question I mean I think that's that's kind of the basis of science is that you always kind of have to be open to new possibilities mm -hmm. and new findings and yeah as technology evolves things will change I think that's just the nature of it but I think for certain things that have been tested over and over again by different labs using different protocols, we can be more confident in those findings. But right. for a variety of things, especially in our lab, since, you know, we have had four grad students, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not that much information about this neuropeptide receptor. Right. So, yeah, definitely redoing some experiments can be helpful and give us more information. So do we have good equipment here? We do, to be able to yeah. To do that? Yeah. Honestly, a lot of my testing... Uh, doesn't need anything crazy. I'd say like the most, the, the newest thing that we have now is this uh, worm filming equipment. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, there's going to be a new movie coming out. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> honestly, yeah. Yesterday attack I felt of this, like... The attack of the sea elegans. Seriously. <laughs> I have many hours of footage of them just crawling around on a plate. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, we have like new technology that can track their movement over a period of time and it's pretty good like you can see like oh this worm was moving for x amount of time or it was moving at this speed or it had this many reversals like it can give us a lot of information about how they're moving on a right, plate so right. that's like a new program it's called worm lab we have it we've had it for a year now and that's like a whole slew of things that we haven't had before in terms of information on their movement 
God, you can see the kids going, I want one of those for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not getting it. <laughs> oh, that's really scary. <laughs> so can the findings of the studies in this worm be applicable to more complicated species, such as mammals? Mm-hmm. I mean, at the moment you're looking at worm versus humans type thing, but can what you do be used in other, in other areas? Yeah, definitely. I would say because of the high conservation of certain genes throughout evolutionary history, a lot of these findings can be applicable. It's not so much the case that if we find something in C. elegans, okay, for sure that will apply to mammalian systems as well. But it can give us a jumping off point and a hint as to what to look at in more complicated organisms. So it's not like a one-to-one, you know, if it works in the worm, it'll work in the mammal. But it can give us a hint as to where to start looking. Okay, I'm going to throw a curveball here. Okay. And I know we're talking about sleep, but I'm going to throw a curveball. But with some of the work that you're doing now and looking and, and that last question about, you know, can it then be sort of transferred type things to other mammals? With all these plagues and things going around, you know, COVID, etc., and uh-huh. that we're finding these new viruses coming from bats in certain areas or monkeys, etc., or pigs and all these mm-hmm. sorts of things. It's the kind of work that you're doing with the worm could that sort of translate to sort of helping find those markers in these other viruses? Um, it doesn't really, I guess, I don't know a lot about C. elegans and viruses in right. terms of what that would work. Okay. I could imagine if there's an equivalent system, it could, it could. be helpful in some way. Mm. But in all honesty, I really don't know like what the C. elegans viral response looks like or if they're even susceptible to the same viruses as we are right yeah right so i don't know i know it was a curve it was a curveball yeah it's interesting though i'm gonna look it up when i it's just how my brain works sometimes Uh i think okay with everything that's going on today what what if yeah totally so with that what have you learned so far Mm -hmm. with your work and how much more do you need to keep it going i.e does someone in the phd program take it on etc so what have you learned so far that will help us understand the human narcolepsy story. Totally. So we've learned that NPR 14 mutants are sleepier. Right. <laughs> That's been confirmed by previous master's students as well as my work. We have, so right now I'm kind of in the data analysis portion of my master's. So in terms of what we found out in where NPR 14 fits into the sleep cycle, we don't have any conclusions as of yet, <laughs> but hopefully in a few weeks we'll have some more idea as to what where it could be because I'm analyzing my data right now. So I look forward to assess how their sleep is affected and if they're sleeping or not, one of which is their movement. So I'll right. film them over a period of time and use the Worm Lab software to assess how often they're moving versus immobile. Right. And then also we have a pharyngeal, it's called pharyngeal pumping assay. That's a lovely word. Yeah, it sounds very complicated, <laughs> but basically saying, are they eating or not? Because oh, okay. if, they're, if they're not eating, they could be sleeping. If they're eating, they're probably not sleeping. Right, um, right. And this is really easy to see, actually. You can score this under a microscope because C. elegans have a transparent body. So you can actually view, there's this uh, structure in their pharynx called the grinder, and you can see when they eat, you can see it move up and down. Oh, really? Yeah. So one of oh my, my tests God. is I'll sit at the microscope for hours on end <laughs> and just count <laughs> just count this grinder movement and see like if, they're, if it's really active or if they're slowing down or if it's totally still kind of to assess how sleepy they are. And then lastly, I have the octanol response assay. And it's basically, octanol is this noxious substance that the worms really don't like. Right. So we have a little 
paintbrush with only one paintbrush hair and we'll dip it into the octanol and wave it in front of their noses and they'll either move away from it or if they're sleeping they have a lower threshold of excitability right. so they won't respond to it as they would if they were awake so oh. these are the three ways I can kind of tell how sleepy they are <laughs> it's just on. I can just again I can see a movie being made yeah. right? you know the, the giant sea elegans you know coming for us <laughs> yeah we have a joke in the lab that they think we're like their god yeah. <laughs> like we'll walk in they'll be like oh, she's back she's back yeah. what's she gonna do to us today yeah seriously <laughs> can she make me sleep please yeah <laughs> and will I wake up yeah who knows <laughs> so talking of that though I mean in, in general, whether it's through the worms or in humans, with this narcolepsy phenomenon, so to speak, or mm-hmm. condition, I mean, it's bad enough that people can suddenly fall asleep. Uh-huh. But is it a because I don't know a lot about narcolepsy other than what you've told me. Right. But is it a condition that there's times when they fall asleep? And they're not going to wake up, or is that just going too far down the track? Uh, I don't believe that's the case. Okay. No. So it's just nodding off. Yeah, it's more like uh, they struggle with maintaining wakefulness. Right. Mm-hmm. I find that sometimes during a difficult right. day. Right. Very yeah. relatable. <laughs> <laughs> don't think I've got narcolepsy, but yeah. there we go. <laughs> so, um, so from there, then, so you've got all this information. You're, you're hoping to be able to do something at it. What do you want to do next with it? Because I must. I would think if you've got this far into your study, and, uh-huh. and, and yes, you're coming out with some results, so there is an end to the study, so to speak, of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But what do you want to do next with it? Yeah. Are you just going to say, okay, well, I've done this, handing it over, uh-huh. or do you want to continue um, doing the next sort of level right. work? There's a lot of stuff to do next. Uh, unfortunately, I should be defending by the end of the year, hopefully, or early next year. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> so um, kind of my chapter of this narcolepsy journey mm-hmm. is coming to a close, but we do have an undergraduate thesis student, Taha, in our lab, who's already starting to continue the research. Oh, fantastic. With, yeah, with some other neuropeptides that haven't been looked at yet. Right. So yeah, there's a variety of things to do. I feel like my supervisor, Dr. B, would love to get this wrapped up, but in truth, I think there's a lot of things we can explore. <laughs> I think so. There's yeah. As you said before, you know, when it comes to science, there's constantly new things that we can be testing and checking. Absolutely. And honestly, like the thing is with with lab work is that things never go as planned. So there's a lot of (laughs) you can imagine, like, I'll get this done in two years, but there's going to be setbacks you don't foresee and things are going to change and there's going to be difficulties. So that also prolongs a project. I bet. Yeah. Not nice. No. um, Someone's got to do it. Exactly. Someone has to do it. So that's that's great. Well, that's that's been. I'm I'm going to look forward to seeing the day or hearing the day when you know, narcolepsy has been sorted, and so people aren't falling asleep at the mm-hmm. drop of a hat. So, um, if this little worm can help do that, I mm-hmm. think that's that's good for us all. Definitely. Actually, I guess I I do have one more question. Sure. You said that you, you talked in the beginning about the prevalence of narcolepsy. Ah. Um, is that prevalence in certain cultural backgrounds or anything because you I think your numbers were from North America was that correct yeah US and Europe yeah but what about some other countries Asia Africa is it oh. higher than that I mean because sometimes I always wonder whether some of these things are to do with the environment that's around right um or genetic and, and the other one of course is genetics mm-hmm. and things but environment itself you know living conditions etc has that made a difference right I actually, I don't know off the top of my head if it's different between, I guess, different groups of people. I would imagine there is some sort of genetic component 
So with narcolepsy, there's actually like two types. Um, one is narcolepsy type one. And for that, we do know the cause is that the neurons that produce the orexin neuropeptide are kind of degraded. And okay. so they have lower, lower levels of orexin in their brain and cerebral spinal fluid. Um, so I would imagine that has some kind of genetic component to mm-hmm. it. But for type two narcolepsy, um, most patients show normal levels of orexin. So the cause is still very much unknown. Unknown, um, right. But I think whatever that is, when it's figured out, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some genetic component to it. So that would make sense if certain groups had it. Have, have they found that if someone in the family has it, there's been other people in the family? Because, I mean, that was really point to genetics, right? The heritability, yeah. Mm. I'm actually not sure about that. Hmm. I'm, not gonna I'm always intrigued about those things. Yeah, I know. Sometimes you probably don't want to know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, granddad's fallen asleep again. I'm going to be doing that shortly. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, thank you about all of that. So I'm, uh-huh. before we finish, though, I want to ask you a couple of things about other things that you do. Right. I am always fascinated how much our students can fit in doing their their own research but at the same time I should go out and do some other fun thing more right. f- well I'm sure this is fun for you too but you are an executive member of the Queen's Outdoor Field Experience Initiative oh, so yes. is that the outdoor club or f- another part no no it's a uh, kind of an offshoot of the biology EDI committee it started, oh like, okay about two years ago but essentially our main focus is kind of making the outdoors more accessible the thing we're most known for and the thing we've put most of our hours towards in the past two years has been our gear lending library. So we have right. yeah, a slew of outdoor equipment and apparel that people can rent out kind of in an effort to make the outdoors more accessible because the cost of gear and apparel is just crazy. So It is crazy. You can rent from coffee if you need a tent or a sleeping bag or hiking boots. That's great. And, and with winter coming up, is the skis and things like that too? No. Not yet? No, it's mostly um, geared towards like field uh, field season stuff. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. For, to actually go and do the research by making sure you've right. got some of the equipment. Right, right, yeah. Right. So we right. do have some stuff that can be used for recreation, but our main goal going into it was how do we make like uh, outdoor field um, courses more accessible. So it's more the basic like camping, hiking, that kind of stuff. And I guess here in uh, Canada, you need to make sure you've got good equipment. Right, Depending yeah. on where you Because I know some of your bio, you biologists go up north <laughs> to, uh-huh. to the Arctic area, which is a tad cold. Yeah, having good equipment can really make or break your experience, so mm-hmm. it's super important to have that. Yeah, you have this, uh, this vision of anyone who's doing biology or environmental studies and things. They're the big outdoors people. They're, right, they're, right. Get me into the rough and ready. And That's definitely prevalent. I'm not going to lie, but not for me. <laughs> but not for you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's awesome. And then some of the other things that you do is, oh, you said you're a novice runner. Ah, yes. Yes. I mean, I would love to be able to run, but I think I'm getting a bit too... The, the joints don't sort of hold me up as well as they used to. So, uh, so what made you get into running? Honestly, it was COVID. Oh, that's a good reason. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing to do in terms of physical activity. And I was like, hey, running is easy. Running is free. And I just fell in love with it. Oh. Yeah. See, I don't think I ever loved it. I right. think that's why I went into team sports, because I didn't realise how much I was running. Right, right. Whereas just running for running's sake, uh-huh. it's kind of like... Oh, okay. It's yeah. like doing laps of the swimming pool. It's like... I find it, well, for sports, I find it 
too stressful. I'm like, are we winning? Am I doing okay? Are people, is my team disappointed in me? Whereas for running, it's, I find it meditative. And once you get to like a certain level of the fitness levels. Yeah. Once it's, once it doesn't feel super hard and it's easy, it's just very, like I'll listen to my favorite music and I'll just go on and it's very like therapeutic, I find. Well, that kind of makes sense, actually. That's probably why you like yoga. But that's nice, too, because that's a relaxing thing. Yeah, yeah. So I can see how you can get into that sort of meditative state of not... And just you don't realise your body's moving, I guess, but because you think you're relaxing your mind instead. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm a bit jealous, actually. I wish I could do that. Right, and it's a good way to explore, like, the neighbourhood as well. That's true. Mm -hmm. Although I'd always be worried if I had headsets on that I'm not hearing cars and things coming around. Right, right. I tend to stay off the busy roads. That's a a good idea. Right. (laughs) Because sometimes you see people running straight across and think, you didn't even look, there's a car coming. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Death death wish from some people. Seriously. Well, Isabel, that was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Who knew worms could tell us so much about potentially what's happening with us? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's always extraordinary, but it's great to see um, that that is happening. So I appreciate you coming on and telling us all about that. And and best of luck with writing up your results. Thank you. And it would be nice to know that I've done what I can in this particular chapter of this experiment and and then pass the baton. Right, exactly. Onto the next undergrad coming through. (laughs) Precisely. Yes. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. That's good. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.